0: For those of you that have been here for the last few weeks, um, there was two weeks ago a talk about faith and cultivating faith. And then last week it was continued in a sense, um, a talk about how to get out of our habitual ways of thinking and really enter the mystery, enter what's called don't know mind, which is the place where all truth and all love, where reality can be found. I'd like to continue on this theme, tonight exploring how we can really touch the nature of our being, the nature of all of life, as we let go of our mental constructs and as we arrive in the moment more fully. In that spirit, I'd like to start with a story that I've now found in pretty much every tradition some comparable story. So um, hopefully it'll be familiar to you. The monastery had fallen upon hard times. The abbot and four other monks were all over 70 and it was a dying order. In the deep woods nearby, a rabbi known for his wisdom lived in a small hut. The abbot visited him and asked for advice that might save the monastery The rabbi commiserated but said he had no advice. And they just prayed and meditated together and embraced and so on. But before parting, the rabbi said, I am sorry, I don't have any advice for you. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. Okay, now you'll remember, it was the abbot and four others. So we returned and told... The others that the rabbi couldn't offer any help, but he also told them that last, those parting words, that the Messiah was living in their midst. So, in the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this, and as they contemplated, they began to treat each other with extraordinary respect, paid more and more attention to each other on the off chance that one amongst them might be the Messiah. And then, on the off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they also began to treat themselves with a kind of respect and attentiveness. People that came by noticed the changing atmosphere, the radiance that seemed to emanate out of the monastery. More and more came by, and over time, increasing numbers, inspired by the old monks asked to join. Within a few years, the monastery once again became a thriving order, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. Now, for whatever the tradition, this same message that Buddha is not out there, that what is divine and sacred is right here, and it's in this room, and actually it's not in just one of us that it is our nature, is probably the most radical message of all the spiritual traditions. It's really true. We might get a glimmer, we might sometimes conceptually get it, but the real truth is, who we are is divine, is sacred, is this awakened awareness. Chanel, a wonderful Zen Korean monk, puts it this way. He says, it's tragic. People have been deluded for so long. They do not recognize that their own minds are the true Buddhas. They do not recognize that their own natures are the true Dharma. They want to search for the Dharma, yet they still look far away for holy ones. They want to search for the Buddha, but they will not observe their own minds. All the Buddhas of the past were merely persons who understood their minds. All the sages and saints of the present are likewise merely people who have cultivated and understood their minds. All future meditators should rely on this truth as well. I hope that you who cultivate the path will never search outside. The nature of the mind, the heart, is unstained, it is originally whole and complete in itself. The reason that this is such powerful dharma is that we mostly live in a trance made up of stories about who we are. And these stories tell us that we're separate that we're deficient, that we're better than some, that we're worse than others, that this day we did something right and the next day we do something wrong. It's filled with higher and lower, with comparing mind, and with separations that really create a distance between our being and our inner life and between ourselves and each other we go along obeying these stories. They tell us what we should do, how we should try to fix ourselves, how we should treat others. Thomas Merton puts it this way. He says, before we can become who we really are, we must become conscious of the fact that the person who we think we are, here and now, is at best an imposter and a stranger. So this is the common denominator of all the wisdom traditions. This coming to realize who we really are and the pathways frequently by coming to realize who we're really not. Catching on that we've been obeying an idea of a false self. I've mentioned in here before this kind of growing appreciation for how Eastern cultures greet each other. Namaste. And it keeps striking me, that the difference between how in the West or here in America we see each other and go, hey, or hi, you know. And in many Asian countries, there's really this palms together bowing, namaste, you know, the word namaste. It means, I see the divine spark in you. What a way to greet people. I mean, can you imagine if even one little percent of your awareness was communicating and experiencing that with each greeting? Can you imagine how that would radically transform our relationships? In a way, this is the spiritual path, this waking up and bowing to our own being, to each other, with the eyes that can see, to see God, Buddha, awakened awareness. Rachel Naomi Raymond, who is a wonderful healer, writer, who will be here actually in June, puts it this way, she says, When we recognize the spark of God in others, in ourselves, we blow on it with our attention and strengthen it, no matter how deeply it has been buried or for how long. That's the blessing of awareness. We can actually look at each other and if we have a glimmer of that light, that love, that awareness, and we see it in another person, just the fact that we're seeing on it It's like we're blowing on it. We're helping that flame to become more luminescent. It's something that intuitively makes sense. And when we can do it with ourselves, when we can get outside our habitual stories about ourselves, and even just a little bit into it, the goodness that's there, that we do care. And even when we're not actively caring, we care about caring. We want to be of benefit. And when we can even get a taste of that, that recognition helps to bring alive the truth. It reconnects us with the seed of who we are, the essence. In the wisdom traditions, there's a non-dual kind of understanding that our innate nature, this Buddha nature, is not something that ever ceases to exist, nor is it born, always has been here, is and always will be here. The traditional metaphor for understanding who we are is that there's this vast, radiant kind of sky of awareness. And there's the sun that illuminates the sky, but it gets obscured or covered by clouds. And so the path is really a path of recognition. And it's interesting, the word recognition means again, cognize. It means we've already recognized in a deep way what needs to be redone and redone, which is really what the path is. It's a state that we have forgotten, but has never gone away. So in some way, when we're caught in not recognizing, we're we're lost in the clouds. And the idea is not to get rid of the clouds, but it's to remember or reconnect to the awareness that includes the clouds and that's radiant and knowing and boundless. Our Buddha nature. Now when we're suffering, and this is kind of the Buddha's starting point, when we're caught in dukkha, our discomfort, in some way our life has become defined by the clouds. The clouds are reflecting who we are, are telling us where we can go, how big we are. This is the stories. When we're suffering, we're living in, we're identified with the stories about being small, separate, and deficient. That's the simplest way I know of understanding it. When we're feeling small and separate, all the conditioning to try to grab onto something to become more or push away things that seem threatening come into action. There's this idea when we're caught in these stories of small self that happiness is out there and it's only achieved by getting something that's not here are by pushing away something that is here. And this is the self-clinging mind. This is the root of all the clouds. The most basic idea that we cling to. I'm separate. I'm deficient. Now is not okay. It's reinforced and reflected in our culture. I sometimes forget and then get caught off balance almost by how much of our culture is advertising that there's this constant effort to sell us on things and it's powered by the greed to be different the wanting to be different, that now is not enough and it's ongoing, it's like wherever we go somebody's trying to sell us on having more of something because now is not okay or how to protect us against something bad about right now I sometimes share here things I, that people send me, and this is one of the most recent, and it's about advertisements that um, that kind of went, a, went askew a bit. German Shepherd, 85 pounds, neutered, speaks German, free. <laughs> Full-size mattresses, 20-year warranty, like new, slight urine smell. <laughs> Nordic track, $300, hardly used, called chubby. <laughs> nice parachute never open used once slightly stained <laughs> free farm kittens ready to eat <laughs> that's awful <laughs> i'll only read one more this is outside a secondhand shop we exchange anything bicycles washing machines etc why not bring your wife along and get a wonderful bargain <laughs> the culture reflects this wanting mind and this fearing mind. And when we get caught in it, it becomes a lifestyle internally. I have a friend that was describing the last few years, she's been in the shadow of a lawsuit. She's been sued, and it just recently ended. But she spent the last few years really in this grip of you know, what was hanging over her and how it could totally ruin her professionally and in a very deep way, it was um, a very wounding process. So the lawsuit went away, it was dropped. And then she found that she was so habituated to organizing around that as a worry that she felt this groundlessness, like she didn't quite know who she was. It was so unfamiliar not to have that to worry about. And she said that she started, experienced this kind of existential anxiety. It's like, if there wasn't that to fix on, there had to be something it was like free-floating anxiety and she just couldn't find where to put it because her familiar way was kind of removed and it reminded me of how so many of us go through life like kind of this sense of worry waiting for something to attach to but it's kind of just floating there Ken Wilber called it this primal mood of anxiety that if we sense we're separate, there's this undercurrent of something's not okay. And if there's not something specific to worry about, we just feel that angst. We get so used to creating stories about what's not okay and what can go wrong. Most of our stories, our worry stories, are about what's around the corner that can go wrong that we don't often, in this moment, feel free to live it fully. It's dangerous just to drop in and say, ah, live this one fully. It's dangerous to experiment. It's dangerous to be creative. The danger is that we'll make a mistake, we'll fail, we'll get punished, we'll be rejected. This is a little essay on faith, and one piece of it says that the African impala can jump to a height of over 10 feet and cover a distance of greater than 30 feet. Yet these magnificent creatures can be kept in an enclosure in any zoo with a three-foot wall. Why? The animals will not jump if they cannot see where their feet will fall. Isn't that interesting? Faith is the ability to trust what we cannot see. And with faith, we are freed from the flimsy enclosures of life that only fear allows to entrap us. Now, the reason that we can't see is because we're believing our stories. I had um, a woman that I counsel over the phone call me last night, and she said that She's beginning as she meditates to put aside her ideas of how far she can go on the spiritual path. And it's very, very subtle, but she's beginning to, she said, I'm beginning to catch on that there really is no limit to how far this goes. Freedom really is possible. That is faith. It's not faith as in a blind faith, but it's a letting go into how it is and not obeying our stories of limitation. Meditation can be understood as a process of of the clouds clearing enough so we can remember the bigger picture, that we can have faith or trust our nature and live fully from that. And it's a process of recognizing, again and again remembering the big open sky of awareness, and that these clouds, these stories, don't define us. This remembering, when we connect with that openness, actually frees us from all the drivenness of having to be more or different. In a moment of remembering, and we've each touched that, in a moment of of sensing the fullness of being. Sometimes it's experienced as, well, I could die right now. You know, everything is, it's all here, this moment. There's a sense of the fullness. And we know it when it happens, like there's not any part of us that's scheming about being somewhere else or being someone different. Zen Master Genza writes, trailing my stick, I go down to the garden's edge, go out through the pine gate. The floods have washed away the planks of the bridge. Shouldering our sandals, we wade the narrow stream. I dabble in the flow, delighted by the shallowness of the stream, gaze at the rocks, admire how firm some of the stones rest. The point of life is to know what's enough. Why envy those others? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. The point of life is to know what's enough. Is this moment enough? Can you drop all the ideas and actually sense the fullness, the completeness of this moment? Are you enough? Is it possible to accept just how you are this moment? This is it. We postpone enough. We have some idea that in our life, either on a personal or spiritual level, that we're moving towards possibly maybe that, but it's not here now. And as long as that's our habit to sense enough is down the road, we keep living with that habit. We keep on postponing. It's not like you do that habit for 75 years and all of a sudden get there. What we're learning in any sitting is to recognize how we're postponing our life and gently and courageously touching into what's right now. Now, what happens when we touch into what's right now is that we sometimes touch into all the angst, all the feelings of fear and wanting that we've been running from, that have been driving us. So our practice, because that creates such a swirl because it creates such busyness is that we learn to use an anchor like the breath to just come back and know that we're going to leave again. And there's not one of us sitting here that sits down to meditate and just empties the mind and is experiencing in a non-dual way this sense of Buddha nature without any interferences. None of us are doing that, I don't think. If anyone is, let's chat. (laughs) But you know what I mean. I mean, it is the nature of mind to get stirred up, to grasp, to avoid, to just generate story after story, to get lost in its stories. So that's how it is. That's part of our conditioning. It's not something to think is unspiritual or wrong. And it is our potential to begin to see that, to see the clouds. And in a moment of seeing, in a moment of seeing, ah, I've been in a story, having thoughts about tomorrow, yesterday. In that moment, there's a bit of freedom. We're no longer inside the cloud. We're re-recognizing the space, the sun, radiance, And that's the first part of our meditation practice, is just to get in this habit of noticing the clouds and relaxing open so that we can see a bit more. Now, you might notice when you're given the instructions to follow the breath, come back to the breath, or come back to the body, that there's a bit of directing going on. There's still a traffic director, one that's saying, oh, been caught, been lost in the clouds, come back, touch this moment. So there's some doing, which points to another level of practice. There's a bit of controlling just to quiet down. But if we keep on controlling, if we keep on moving the mind away from this and towards that, it just reifies a self that needs to control things. So... As the Buddha described our practice, where we really land up is with what's called choiceless awareness. As the clouds begin to thin and there's less being lost in the busyness, our practice is more and more to simply notice what's happening and let go. Relax. It's in a moment of recognition and relaxation that the divisions, the dualities, the separation, dissolve. It doesn't happen when we're controlling our mind, when we're saying, hey, wake up out of a thought, hey, go back to the breath. It happens when we realize the clouds and then let go and relax and be present. What happens when we try to relax and be present is we frequently encounter this habit of contracting again, over and over again. Now, One of the best descriptions I've ever heard of noticing these contractions, noticing all this urgency to reconstruct a reality and to do something, control things, because that's what we're trying to do, is this description from Joko Beck. And she describes our emotional contractions, our efforts to protect ourselves as a spasm and calls the ceaseless chatter of our inner, our internal dialogue, the imaginary film. And the turning point comes when we realize that this spasm is on the road that leads to freedom. In other words, it's part of who we are And that what could be said is that we're perceiving under the imaginary film a certain profound sensation of a cramp, of a paralyzing grip, of a mobilizing cold. And it is on this hard couch, immobile and cold, that our attention should remain fixed as though we tranquilly stretch out our bodies on a hard but friendly rock that was exactly molded to our form. Now I'm going to translate a little. Here we are in practice, and we sit and we spend some time at the beginning of a sitting, noticing when the mind wanders and coming back to the breath. The reason we do this, so we're not completely lost in the busyness of our stories, not completely inside the clouds. What can happen as we get a little more skillful is that there's some space between the clouds. We begin to get that There's awareness and there's thoughts coming up, not just living inside the film, inside the story. But then what happens? We're not so much in the stories. What we encounter is all that energy that's driving the stories, the fears, the wants. That's what's called the contraction, this bodily kind of intensity that we've been running from. So our practice is then to pause and simply rest in that. There's no freedom if we just take off in the stories. The only healing and freedom is if we can lie down on this icy couch, if we can come and rest in what is. Now, what happens is we begin to become aware of the patterns of contractions, the kind of things we most run from the things that are very hard to let be. And I'm just going to name two of the major ones we run from. One of the contractions we run from is a sense of our own imperfection. You might have noticed how when there's something you really feel is wrong with you, it's very hard to sit down and just feel that energy of something's wrong with me. We get into all our modes of how to fix myself, how to cover the deficiency, how to pretend to the world. It's rare that we sit in the actuality of something is wrong. Of course, there's this from um, the museum in Britain. They say, last week I saw a man who had not made a mistake in 4,000 years. He was a mummy, of course, in the British Museum. We have this fear of making mistakes, and yet it's universal. So what we do, and we do this whether it's in a sitting or in life, is we run from that feeling. So that's one of the kind of spasms, that it is part of becoming spiritually free to learn to rest in, to just relax and feel fully. We take ourselves seriously. We take not making a mistake as the biggest thing of importance. And because our body-mind is so knotted up in trying to avoid, there's a tremendous freedom when we just sit down and feel how it is. I love this from Han Shan, it's called Bugs in a Bowl. I say, that's right, up the sides and back down, round and round, over and over again. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry and moan, or look around, see your fellow bugs, say, hi, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. (laughs) So not living so much in these stories of personally, what's wrong with me, or what's wrong with you, or what's wrong with life, being willing to rest in that gives us a kind of openness and freedom. So that's one of the contractions that's very hard to face up to, imperfection. The other one is the inevitability of loss, the dying that's going on all the time, impermanence. There is a description of renunciation by Suzuki Roshi that's really helpful to me. He says, renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. In a way, this resting on the icy couch is resting in the truth of impermanence that everything we love dies or passes, that these bodies inevitably will be gone, these minds that there's nothing we can depend on or hold on to. Now that's a hard one to face. So we create all sorts of stories and strategies to try to hold on or to try to avoid loss. Some writers and philosophers have described our whole mode of being as a way of escaping the truth of dying. So this is another icy couch. This is another place where we're asked to not to manipulate anything, but just to rest in what's real, in this changing stream, in this truth that we can't hold on. When Kafka was an older man, he spent a lot of time sitting in a park. One day a little girl walked by him, tears running down her face. He asked her to stop and tell him what's wrong. And she told him, I'm missing my doll, she's lost. Well, I'll look around he said, and he tried, but he didn't find the doll, so he came back and he said, I'll see if I can find her, you just go on home. And then a few days later, the girl returned, and Kafka was there, and he, had, he didn't have the doll, but he had a note, and the note read, I've gone off to travel some around the world. Please don't worry about me, I'm fine. <laughs> so the girl was somewhat relieved, and she returned to the park every week or so, and Kafka would be there with a note from the doll, You know, the girl was too young to read, so he'd read, telling her of the doll's adventures. Well, Kafka got much sicker over time, and then he went to the park for his last visit there. And this time, he had brought a doll. And he handed it to the girl and said that the travels had really changed her. (laughs) As As travels and adventures do. Well, some years later, when the girl was a young woman, she found and read a note that had been rolled up and placed in the doll's hand. And this is what it said. You will lose everyone you love, but the love will always return in new forms. When we inevitably encounter death, And most of us have either very directly or indirectly. We begin to see that how we respond to dying and death is really how we're responding to life. And I've had in the last year some really extreme contrasts in what I've witnessed. And especially, um, in the last maybe eight months, two different friends lost their moms. And one friend's mom, as she got sicker, became more and more fearful and tight and bitter and really pushed people away in her, in her um, fear, really, is what it was, in her fear. And the other, as she became sicker, just surrendered more and more and really accepted that she was going. And in that accepting became quite large In fact, anybody that went in to visit her felt like in some way they were held by her spirit. And her concerns became less and less petty and more and more just the living of the moment. There was a real cherishing going on. And when I hear these type of stories, it really reminds me of why I practice. One way of understanding practice is that we're learning to die. And we're learning to live. And there's no difference. Because everything is about dying. Every day, at the end of the day, that day has died. Every moment. It's all passing so quickly. These bodies, these experiences, they're just a changing stream that we can't hold. And if we have the awareness to let it go, to not hold on, to not try to control so much, our hands are open to receive what's next. Rumi writes this, he says, Love is the sea of not-being, and there intellect drowns. The thoughts of a separate self dissolve. Here swimming ends always in drowning. You lift up your robe so as not to wet the hem. Come, drown in the sea a thousand times. This lying down into the moment, resting on the icy couch, not avoiding the difficulties, is a way of surrendering and dying. We're surrendering all our resistance, all our strategies for avoidance. That's really what meditation practice is. And there's not a moment where that's not the opportunity. It's not like we only have the opportunity to let go and drown into the sea of love when somebody close to us is dying, the opportunity is this moment, this moment just to drop what we're holding on to, drop our ideas about what's supposed to happen, relax open from any kind of holding or controlling and rest in what is. And sometimes what is will be difficult and sometimes it'll feel very, very spacious and that, too, doesn't matter. There's a sense as you deepen on the path that it's all equal. Pleasant, unpleasant. And that what matters is the quality of relating. Can we relax the grip? Can we let go into the stream? This is the heart of formal practice. We prepare the environment by concentrating on the breath and quieting the mind. But the essence of our practice, what connects us with our deepest nature is this just this simple recognizing what's happening and letting go, letting go, letting go and yet noticing what's happening again and again. And we do it through our body and we do it through our mind. We let go as we relax our body and just feel what's here. We let go as we notice thoughts and not push them away, but pause and open and sense what is true. Now, let me read you from Punjaji, one of the great non-dual masters. And the question is, what is this interval between the thoughts that come? Because this is where the juices, if we're not inside the clouds, What's between and around? So listen. In that interval is consciousness. Between two clouds, there is an interval and that interval is the blue sky. Slow down the thoughts and look into the intervals. Yes, look into the intervals and pay more attention to the interval than the cloud. Where the first thought has left and the other is not arisen, That is consciousness. That is freedom. That is your own place, your own abode. You are always there, you see. Shift the attention. Change the gestalt. Don't look at the figure so much. Look at the background. If I put a big blackboard the size of the wall here and marked it with a white point and asked you, what do you see, 99% of you will not see the blackboard you will say, I see a little white spot. Such a big blackboard, and it's not seen. And only a little white spot, which is almost invisible, is seen. It's fixated on. Why? Because this is the pattern of the mind. To look at the figure and not the blackboard. To look at the cloud and not the sky. To look at the thought and not at consciousness. That's all the teaching is. Always look to consciousness. Always look to consciousness and know this is what you are. This is your own place, your own abode. Stay here. For me, if I read nothing else to myself but that each day, there would be no other Dharma instruction that would be necessary. Our essence is this radiant, wakeful, loving space. It includes the clouds, the waves, but it's not defined by that. And to know that as truth, we need to relax this habit of fixation of sticking to these ideas and stories and clouds and look deeply into our nature. Look at the space between thoughts. In a moment of genuine looking, the split between the looker and what is seen dissolves. There's just vast expanse. There's the changing stream that reveals itself. When we really look I'm gonna invite you to try this more in a few moments in our last meditation. When we really look into the space, we don't find anything. You can try. If you look into right now, who is listening to this talk? Go ahead and try. Just turn the mind and look. Who is listening? Who's aware of this moment? without making up any stories, honestly, directly look and relax. Is there anything to hold on to? Is there really a little self in there that you can describe and define? Is there a wizard behind the curtain manipulating things? It said that there's nothing there, yet in this not finding, totality is discovered. The actual recognition of who we are, of this source of our being, is remarkably effortless. It's just a looking into the looker and relaxing, looking into our nature. This is the essence of our practice. We need to prepare some, each of us. Because we're so caught in the stories, we need to relax the mind, to focus, to gather. But to really discover the truth of our nature, simply looking into awareness itself and then relaxing. So staying for this final meditation as you are. If you need to adjust, please feel free. to will just spend a few moments looking into the looker. And we begin as we begin all sittings by just establishing an awareness of how it is. In a way, we're looking at the contents of the clouds, we're looking at what the senses are perceiving, the sounds around us, the experience of the sitting posture, noticing your mood or the thoughts that might be moving through. And then letting your intention be to notice the thoughts and stories and to begin to sense the space between and around them when there's no thought just looking into awareness who's here, who's aware look and then without any strain just relax into what is seen become the space that's between the clouds, between the thoughts. Become that sky of awareness. You'll notice another thought will pop up. Notice it and then pause again, looking into awareness. Who's aware? What is aware? turning the mind, looking, and then relaxing. the awareness of thoughts be an invitation to look into the space between thoughts around them. Sense what's true. Let go into that. Again, the words of Punjaji. Before the beginning, you are pure consciousness. You are the fullness of love, in love, and the emptiness of awareness. You are existence and the peace beyond peace. You are that screen on which all is projected. You are the light of knowledge, the one who who gave the concept of creation to the creator? Forget what can be forgotten and know yourself. Know yourself to be that which can never be forgotten. You are the substratum on which everything moves. Let it move. You are now. You are nowness. What I is there which can be out of this now? You are truth and only the truth is. So thank you for your presence and your attention. I'd just like to make a few comments about tonight's talk and then open it with about five minutes for questions. Um, For some of you this might have felt like it was difficult to understand, for others it might have not. And just to say that there's nothing you need to buy or believe in. This is completely an invitation to experiment and explore. For a lot of the times that we practice, the instructions for meditation that have that simplicity of back to the breath, quieting the mind, are really what's going to help to give us that pathway into presence. But if you find yourself quieting, you find there's a little more space between the clouds, you might want to start exploring by looking into awareness and really asking that question, who am I? Who's aware? So this will be um, continued next week with um, different ways of exploring the nature of mind, the nature of who we are. But just to say, if there's something that feels difficult or discouraging, put it aside, because we all at different times need different guidance in how we practice. So with that, I'd like to open it if anyone has any questions about this talk or about what we're doing here. Or a sharing on what you noticed tonight when you just sat and attended. Yeah. Just speak loud if you can. Mm-hmm,
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the, the comment was that impermanence is a disturbing thing to pay attention to. And is there a possibility that if we can get fixated on, oh, everything's going, everything's dying, and really get kind of lost in that, in that kind of sadness and reactivity? And um, I'll just answer in two parts. Impermanence, is we're designed to be disturbed by that notion. I mean, it's, it's, it's our nature to not like that, it's part of being incarnated in these body minds to want to persist in our existence and not want to um, be blinked out. So that's, that's part of it. Um, the truth is that it's our nature to incarnate and get identified and feel separate, but it's also part of our nature, and this is what's not always recognized, to discover a larger and more boundless sense of identity that's not threatened. And it's only by facing the feeling of being threatened that we can see how much we've organized our life around avoiding it. In other words, if we spend our day avoiding the truth of our mortality, we're not really living our moments. And even by not what we call fixating on it, it's still an undercurrent of fear. So until it's brought into the light of awareness, it actually controls us. And you can see so much of... Um, compulsive behavior and grasping and violence and so on is coming from that unseen undercurrent of I'm going to die and things are going to go wrong. The guidance from the Buddha is not to fixate on what seems morbid or negative, but simply to recognize what's true, which is it is all passing. But it doesn't have to be seen in a um, negative way. It can be almost seen like this life, death, life, death, birth, rebirth process is this infinitely creative process. And when we can let go of a moment or a body, our being is open to receive whatever's next. So it's in that spirit of facing truth and not living, avoiding something, um, that the Buddha gave these instructions to really be with impermanence. So I hope that's helpful. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for your question. Yeah, his uh, language, by the way, in the scriptures about it is that there's one thing, the not seeing of which perpetuates our suffering, and the seeing of which can free us. And that is the seeing of this suffering, this way that we avoid. And as soon as we see it, we're not so caught in it. Okay, anyone else? Did everyone hear this? That the most difficult, painful point for for you is that the other parts of it, relaxing, paying attention and so on, gathering the attention, all fine. But as soon as that looking into awareness itself, that turning of the mind and asking that question, that's what feels really, really difficult and painful. Is that what you said? This is, um, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that you framed it that way because that really is, um, it is the critical juncture. It's like everything else up to that point, there's some kind of controlling of experience, but to actually look into awareness itself and then just let go is the place where we're really dying. It's like any last vestige of a sense of self, of an idea of anything, um, can't survive that. And so what happens is when you try, but you still try to, there's still thoughts about it. It can be really, really painful because if you look and say, okay, who is listening this moment? And if you look to see that and try to answer with a cognition, you can't get it. There is no mental thought that can grasp the truth of our nature. The truth of our nature is bigger than any thought. So there's going to be a real uncomfortability as long as we try to look and find the truth with our cognitions. And I think that's what you're running into. And so how to, how to relate to that? See if you can glance in with a kind of sincere, ah, now what, what's true? And then relax as much as you can, even just kind of physically relax and just re-enter the changing flow what you'll notice if you look and you really look is there sensations and there's sounds and there's moods and everything's passing and there's nothing solid that you can hook into just let go into the movement it's a powerful inquiry it's the kind of inquiry that if you do but you don't do it cognitively um, can reveal the depth of being But on the way, it can be filled with all sorts of intensity like you described. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which isn't, it's not important to discern that. But what Ted was describing is when he looked into the space between thoughts, the experience was this very kinesthetic stream, much like, you know, a wave looking at itself and just re-entering kind of an ocean of energy. And that is a, a wonderful kind of expression of how to, um, relax out of creating yet another concept about what's happening and just let go, surrendering into. To keep doing that and notice even the subtle tendency to create an idea about what's happening. As soon as you even get an idea of an ocean and wave, you're again creating a metaphor, which I find very, very useful and eventually have to be dropped.
1: (laughs) Right. Right.
0: Right. So, in the midst, there's no story, and if you keep doing this, because inquiry, and we're going to be exploring more of this, this kind of questioning into like our nature, um, the, you can have a real fresh experience, and then do it three times later, and find that there's a subtle tendency to take the third time ago experience and slap on a frame of reference. So, this is just an invitation to be alert to the sneakiness of the conceptual mind. <laughs> It is very sneaky. It wants to explain things and is afraid of the mystery.